Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is a quick word from our sponsors. Reportex makes transcribing and editing audio super easy. Record with the Audio Recorder app for Android and transcribe via the app or upload an audio file with drag and drop. Access the transcription on your laptop and edit it with simple copy, paste and delete commands. Your audio file will instantly mirror all text changes automatically. Try it at no charge at reportex.io. I've got to give Brooksy a quick call, tell him about this. It's going to make our lives almost too easy. Hello? Brooksy, good to hear the catchphrase. Still going strong. How productive are you being at the moment? Not very. I've got an app for you, mate. Reportex. I'm all ears. Tell me more. Editing recorded speech has never been easier. You don't need audio editing experience, which I know you don't have. The audio edits itself instantly as you edit the transcription. This is obviously useful for anyone who records speech for whatever reason. Journalists, researchers, lecturers, students, podcasters. Here's the point. I think we download this app and then sack our producers. Record, transcribe, edit. Too easy. So who's going to tell our producers they're getting the sack? I was thinking maybe you do that. Brooksy? With a fast, automatic and accurate transcription, you can skip right to the good bit, the creative part of processing your material. In my case, cutting out all the nonsense that Brooksy says. And it's affordable, with subscription plans for all preferences. To get this special promotion, visit reportex.io and claim using the coupon code SCIENCESH20. Get productive using text-based audio editing. Try Reportex at no charge, visit reportex.io and get going. Seven days, God created the world. And in seven seconds, I shattered mine. Ken Anderson, Ed Wright, Monica Freeman, Stephen Phillips, Sarah Jensen. It is within my power to drastically change his circumstances, but I don't want to give that man a gift that he doesn't deserve. Sorry, Phoebe, I just. You know, I just wanted to do a good deed, like like you did with the babies. This isn't a good deed. You just want to get on TV. This is totally selfish. Whoa, whoa, whoa. So there's a very common perception out there um, that people are inherently and universally selfish. Most classical economics, it assumes selfishness as the only real human motive. It goes without saying, I am far, far from 
being a perfect human being, but I am motivated by a vision. Here's my card. If anyone from the IRS tries to contact you, you call me immediately. Thank you. A couple weeks back, Stan came up to Alex asking him for money. Instead of just handing him a dollar, Alex invited him inside to sit down together for a meal. Do unto others what you would have them do to you. That is the golden rule, and it is not very complicated. And I think that's just important as we go about our daily life to realize that the people around us are not fundamentally callous and only looking out for themselves. Most people really do care about others' welfare. Our expectations to have less violence in the world, to treat people fairly, our standards keep going up. Why do I get the feeling you're doing me a really big favor right now? Because I get the feeling that you really deserve it. Hello and welcome to Science-ish. I'm Rick Edwards, joined as ever by Dr. Michael Brooks. Hello. Who is jet-lagged because <laughs> you've been where, Brooks? Oh, I've been in New York, mate. Have you? What were you doing there? Uh, holiday with the family, just taking them around, showing them the sights. Best sight? Probably the pancakes with bacon and eggs that I had yesterday morning. Not a classic sight, <laughs> I would argue, but all right. Statue of Liberty, tick that off. Yeah, yeah, did that. Empire State? Did that. Central Park? Yeah. That's it done, isn't it? Yeah. So, uh, th- that's it. Just a bit of general chat, just to warm us up about Brooksy's holiday. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, The idea of the show is, is not a chat about Brooksy's holidays. We take a piece of fiction, and then we ask one big question. And this week, it is your turn, Michael. What have you got for us? So, this week, we are looking at the film Seven Pounds. Will ah, Smith, yes. have you seen it? I hadn't previously seen Seven Pounds for obvious reasons. <laughs> Sounds rubbish. Um, and then I've been ill and I couldn't face watching it. So <laughs> I didn't. I just read the plot summary on Wikipedia. <laughs> and Classic you, Edwards. You know, you sort of get the idea from that. Um, I mean, basically what happens is throughout the film, Will Smith is making contact with people who need replacement organs. So Woody Harrelson's a blind guy, needs a new set of eyes. Rosario Dawson needs a new heart. She's got a heart defect. And so throughout the film, he's sort of you know, clearly preparing to kill himself and give his organs to various members of the cast. And then you sort of realise through flashbacks and everything else that he's doing this basically because he can't live any longer. He can't live with himself because he was in a car crash where his fiance died. Mm. And, and then, spoiler, should we give spoilers or not? I'm never going to watch it, so I don't care. Okay, so, I mean, you find out right at the end that basically he caused the crash by looking at his phone while he was driving, and it's all his fault, and he killed several people, and he's basically trying to make up for the way that he's just shitted over loads of people's lives. So he's trying to atone for his sin. Exactly. Okay. Why is it called Seven Pounds? Uh, because uh, it's like seven pounds of flesh, basically. Because he killed seven people. Okay, okay. I'm guessing that, actually. I, I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I spoke to the doctor again. Send over your files in the morning. Is this everything? Yeah. Any questions? Same one. <clears throat> Same answer, then. Stay focused. Do what you promised me. What, you, th- you think I'm... Do what you promised me. What's the what's the question then? So the big question pounds? we're asking is: Does altruism really exist? So just doing 
things doing good. out of the goodness of your heart yeah, yeah, for does, other people without benefiting yourself. Yeah, is there such a thing as really being a nice person, willing to just do stuff for mm. people with no payback whatsoever? Mm, I like it. Uh, who have we tracked down to eviscerate this question for us? <laughs> so we've got Associate Professor of Psychology and Neuroscience at Georgetown University, Abigail Marsh, who's done a lot of work in this area. Really fascinating stuff. Finally tonight, a heartwarming reminder of the power of one good deed. It all started with a waitress helping two exhausted firefighters. So altruism is any behavior that is performed to benefit somebody other than the person performing it. So that could be anything from giving somebody else money or helping them get out of a tight spot or donating your blood or organs to them. It's, it covers a range of behaviors. Just a few minutes from the end of his shift, pulled out his own credit card and said, it's on me. Just the, the biggest debates in the sort of historical narrative have been about, A, whether it's possible for behavior to really be altruistic in the sense that it was motivated by a desire to help somebody else rather than by some ulterior selfish motive. And I would say that's a debate that's been going on for thousands of years. There's no unselfish good deeds, sorry. Yes, there are. There are totally good deeds that are selfless. Well, may I ask for one example? Yeah, it's... You know, there's... No, you may not. There has always been a sense, I think, for anybody who studied the topic, that there, there has to be some intrinsic relationship between empathy and altruism. And the most basic definition of empathy is having an emotional response to somebody else's emotional state. And sometimes that occurs by direct emotional, what's called contagion, where you, you literally catch somebody else's emotion when you hear them uh, crying, it, you uh, sort of catch that sad state. When people smell somebody else's sweat who has been experiencing fear while they were sweating, you actually see activity in the fear structures in the person's brain who smelled it. So that's a really low-level form of empathy. And on some level, it has to be a, a, a critical starting point for altruism. But then there are other things that are called empathy, too, which are a little more complex and related in different ways to altruism. So um, cognitive empathy is the term for what's sometimes called perspective taking or theory of mind, which is understanding somebody else's cognitive states, like their intentions or beliefs or desires. And perspective taking can be related to altruism. But it's not necessarily related to altruism. And the best evidence for this is that people who are autistic are seriously lacking in the ability to perspective take, and yet they're often very caring and helpful people. It's just um, they sometimes have a little more difficulty understanding how they should help, but the desire is still there. So straight off the bat, Having not really given us a great deal of thought before. You surprised me. If I'm honest. My guess would be that behaviour that appears on the surface to be altruistic is actually just, when you unpack it, going to end up being about gene preservation. You're a silly, but can't you? But, well, uh, am I wrong? No. Right. Well, thank you. you <laughs> no, I mean, to a certain extent, that is that is definitely the case. So there's this idea that when you're being nice to people you actually tend to be nice to people who are close to you genetically you know if you were to map out all the acts of kindness so-called kindness that you've mm. done actually you would find that a lot of them are to do with 
sort of helping those with similar gene pools to you. So, so it's called kin selection. And you basically will help your siblings. I know you don't have any siblings, classic mm. only child. Mm -hmm. But you will help your siblings or your parents or your children far more readily. Because basically, if you're taking a hit by doing something nice, you know, you're putting yourself at risk, say. Uh, and, and you're not you necessarily to... taking a hit by doing something nice. Well, you are because you're putting yourself out. You're always taking a hit if you're being nice because you're not acting selfishly. Does that follow? Is it, are there yeah. only two categories of action? What, what can you or... do that is really nice for somebody that doesn't involve some kind of self-sacrifice? Right. I, we arrive here and I open the door for you. You expend energy, you expend effort. You don't. Get but I've got to go through the door you, you myself anyway. You have anyway. to wait for me. I might take a while to go through the door. There's you do, some... you're a very slow-moving man. <laughs> <laughs> but there's always some kind of cost to everything. I mean, you know, it might okay. be tiny, it might be negligible. But the point is that you're far more likely to do them for people who share your gene pool. And this has kind of been confirmed in experiments. The funny thing is that you're half as likely to do it for a half sibling as you are for a full sibling. Really? Yeah, yeah. This is, goes back to the selfish gene idea. So a lot of this work was done by George Price in the late 60s. The idea that somehow you are just genetically programmed to make it easier, make it more likely that these genes that you've got will make it into the next generation. So parents will take a bullet for their kids, effectively, because it's sort of worth it in that the genes will carry on at least. Whereas if you don't mm. take the bullet for your kids, you've got to reproduce again, effectively. And I would take a bullet, possibly, oh, I wouldn't take a bullet for my brother, but I'm more likely to take a bullet for my brother than my half-brother. What about your sister? I've met her. Half-sister. You're not taking a bullet for her, are you? <laughs> That's a great phrase. <laughs> I'm not taking a bullet for any of my family, to be honest. I need a favor. Whatever you need, just ask me. I need a name. Someone in the system, someone having a really hard time that needs help, but maybe too proud to ask for a handout. What are you doing? I'm helping. So hang on, are you saying then that I am more likely to be altruistic towards members of my family? Yeah. With sort of decreasing sort of intensity as I get less related yeah. to them. Yeah, Does that mean I will never be altruistic towards someone I'm not related to? No, it doesn't. So, so you can be altruistic, and, and that's partly to do with being a human being, is that mm. we grow up in a social environment where humans basically cooperate and we've always done this because we're a social species uh, we have to be able to look after each other and do things together but that's a, there's a kind of reward expectancy there so if i look after you then sometime in the future when i need something you'll look after me and we have this kind of social contract effectively yeah. where i will be nice to people around me and i hope that they'll be nice to me and you know so we do things like pay into things like the national health system or a kind of good example of everyone paying in not necessarily going to get the same benefit out, but we all realise that if we need it, we will have it there for us. So are we drawing a distinction then between that kind of social contract stuff where I'm doing something nice in the hope that I get something nice back at a later date and altruism, which feels well, like it's... a slightly purer <laughs> So altruism act. feels like it's really pure, doesn't it? But mm. actually, even with altruism, it's been shown that just random acts of kindness, you know, to a stranger or whatever 
it activates the serotonin system. So you're getting a little buzz from it. Yeah, you, well, you, you feel good when so, you do good. Yeah, exactly. So it's not really altruism, is it? But then why would we evolve to have that manifest itself? Because it helped us as a species. So back mm. you know, when we were hunter-gatherers, we absolutely needed everyone to cooperate together. And so doing nice things for people, feeling good, was a kind of good evolutionary strategy, effectively, for the survival of the species. So it makes perfect sense that we would get a buzz from doing nice things for people because that's how we evolved and survived. But also there's this sense that actually we're hardwired for it anyway. So, so we show empathy towards people. So, so a homeless guy, you know, we actually sort of feel their distress and we respond to distress as human beings. That's hardwired in us as well. So I guess if it all comes down to empathy, then a good group to study would be people who don't have any empathy. Psychos. Exactly. Good old psychopaths. People ascend to the top in the business world. A new study suggests they may have to have the traits of a psychopath. When you look at me, you know what hate is. Because I don't know what love is. Two words I don't like to use is love and sorry. So what's interesting is that more recently there's been this idea that psychopathy, which is the word used to describe people who are psychopathic, is not it's not like an isolated little group of people. There's really sort of a range of psychopathic traits, and some people have a lot of psychopathic traits, and those people obviously cause a lot of suffering in the world. Some companies that focused primarily on skills and experience are now considering personality as a top factor when hiring. And then there's most people who are somewhere in the middle who, you know, are fairly caring. But then the idea that psychopathic traits range continuously in the population with highly psychopathic people on one end suggests that there must be something on the other end of the continuum of people who are sort of anti-psychopathic. That idea um, gave me the incentive to start searching for populations of people who might be anti-psychopathic, which could be, I thought, even more revealing in terms of understanding where the ability to care about other people's welfare comes from. Only on four, a Highlands Ranch teenager who needed a kidney is reunited with a stranger who donated her organ. And so the population that I landed on is uh, people who have given away one of their own uh, kidneys to a stranger. What's interesting about donating a kidney to a stranger, especially what are called non-directed donations, which are anonymous, is that Uh, The person who is giving away their kidney knows that they may never meet the person who's going to be getting their kidney. And so they'll never receive any even thanks for what they've done. And they can't receive any payment for it. And they have to undergo an enormous amount of medical and psychiatric screening. An enormous amount of time and energy is expended to do these donations. And so it's very difficult to come up with a reason that anybody would choose to donate a kidney in this way other than they really just wanted to benefit the person who would receive it. Because pretty much any of the other standard explanations for altruism have been ruled out. It seems miraculous that my, my small sacrifice can impact somebody else, and not just Jillian, but her entire family, so much. So my students and I here at Georgetown conducted the first ever brain scanning research with extraordinarily altruistic people, specifically altruistic kidney donors, to try to answer this question of whether they look like they're at the opposite end of this sort of continuum of care from people who are psychopathic. And what we found is that, indeed, they do look a lot like an anti-psychopath in three respects. One, 
we found that whereas people who are psychopathic have amygdalas that are smaller than average, which may be why they have trouble empathizing with other people's fear in particular, people who are highly altruistic have amygdalas that are larger than average by about 8%. And their amygdalas are also more active, especially in response to the sight of somebody else's fear, which is consistent with an empathic response. Finally, they're better at recognizing other people's fear. So when they see a face that looks afraid, they're able to identify how that person is feeling, which again is the opposite of what we see in people who are psychopathic. And so that suggests that these particular features have some really strong intrinsic relationship to individual differences in caring and the capacity for altruism. I'm definitely not an anti-psychopath because there's no way I'm giving one of my kiddies to a stranger. I I literally, I thought this through while I was watching the film. You wouldn't, would you? No. Categorically not. No, there is nothing. It feels that would make like do that. a very eccentric decision to me. I mean, the thing that really swung it for me is that what if the other, the other kidney one packs up? Yeah, I know. It's like, <laughs> it's like can ah, I get it back? I'm going to need. Yeah, <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, no. There's no way I'm doing that. There are people who do. How many people are doing it? Um, it's a few hundred. Yeah, it's, it's a sort of, few hundred every year or something. Yeah, it's it's not. Like a common thing, and it's seen as a crazy thing. So it you didn't even used to be allowed to do it because it was classified as a mental illness. I think I might still classify it like that. Yeah, yeah. I think what's really interesting is I saw a thing in a report in the Washington Post about this woman called Angela Quazzo. So she donated a kidney mm-hmm. to somebody that she didn't mm-hmm. know. Uh, but it also said, you know, she was single with no children and going through a minor midlife crisis at the time. So, you know, the, the clue... Better sports car, really. Yeah, I was going to say, the clue is sort of like, and this is true of Will Smith in the film, it's like a way of giving a little bit of meaning to your own life when you're feeling like it doesn't have enough. This is a stretch too far for it's me. It's a stretch. and I think neither of us have a big amygdala. I think that's what I we think can I've say. I think I've got a very average-sized yeah. amygdala. Yeah, I mean, it's not small. I'm not a psycho. Whereas what's happening with these these people who are have a an enlarged amygdala or a, a larger than normal amygdala yeah. they're just incredibly like acutely sensitive to other people's fear yeah. and distress and yeah. that makes them more yeah. likely to be incredibly altruistic so you could classify it as a mental illness you know there's a physiological reason it's a it's, there's some eccentricity in your brain yeah that has made you into this person does it make you a good person? I mean, that's a good question, isn't it? You are a good person in that, you know, you're doing lovely things for people, uh-huh. but you're not really in control of it. Yeah, but we're not really in control of anything, are we? No, we're not. If you go down that road. No, no, exactly. So there's no such thing as a good person. It, well, there is. You just don't have any control over it. But I'm saying they're not good as such, are they? They're just, well, they're behaving. They're, I mean, they're, they're behaving in a good way. Yeah. <laughs> How else are you going to measure it? It doesn't make them a good person just because they behave in a good way. Well, hang on. <laughs> Yes, it does. What are you on about? I'm reclassifying how are you, it. How are you reclassifying it? I'm saying how are you, you judging whether someone a large is a good right amygdala. Yeah, and then they're behaving in a way but, that you know you they shouldn't take credit for that. Describe as good. <laughs> you can't take credit for but that. But that means you can't take credit for anything. No, you can't take credit for anything. Okay, actually. fine. If you say you can't take credit for anything, yeah. then all right. Yeah. Does it mean that I can find <laughs> organ donors? Quite by, easily, just by, by scanning, for, scanning for big amygdalas, <laughs> <laughs> preying on people with big amygdalas, <laughs> just going, I've got a feeling yeah. that you will give up a lung. <laughs> <laughs> I am after a heart. <laughs> now, I mean, are you Heart's just... the big one, isn't it? If yeah, you're giving I mean, up your heart, you must have a fucking huge amygdala. <laughs> so, uh, I heard you raised enough money to give a couple of kids partial scholarships to college. Uh, it's no big deal. 
just uh, convinced a couple of bigwig donors that what the world really needs to see is more Latinos on ice. <laughs> you know, Ben, uh, I keep asking you this, but why me? Because you are a good man. No, really. Even when you don't know that people are watching you. Is there something going on here where altruistic decisions are kind of happening almost at a subconscious level then? Because it occurs to me that if you think this through rationally, you are unlikely to arrive at a conclusion, it's a good idea for me to give one of my kidneys to a stranger. Whereas if you just sort of, like someone says... feel it. Are you going to... Yeah, yeah, no, like... Do you know what I mean, though? Like, are you going to give up a kidney? You just go... Yeah. So there's been and they just go for it. Yeah, there's been experiments done on this where people's altruism was sort of tested, mm. and then it was retested after they did um, transcranial magnetic stimulation to disrupt the thinking bit of the brain, effectively mm-hmm. the one that does rational thought. Yeah. And when you disrupt that, then people will give more. But if you can have a bit of rational thinking, then you reduce the level of altruism. So what implications does this have for how we think about human nature, then? Well, that's something that we asked Professor Marsh. Okay. Foul ball for her? Oh. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Wait, what was that, what was that adult lady doing to that little gal? She, she took the ball. Juan Miranda tried to give it to the little gal. And she took it she from took it right from her. That was last oh, Friday. beyond wrong. So there's a very common perception out there that people are inherently and universally selfish. Most classical economics, it assumes selfishness as the only real human motive. Why was it necessary to raise the price of Daraprim so drastically? This particular drug is used by a small but vulnerable group of patients, so you see how greedy this move looks. Yeah, I could see how it looks greedy, but I think there's a lot of altruistic properties to it. Altruistic, absolutely. But when you actually study animals, human animals included, you can see a whole range of different kinds of motivations. And one of the things that sets mammals, of course, humans are mammals, apart is that somewhere along the way in evolutionary time, we had to develop the capacity to care for beings other than ourselves because, of course, the hallmark of mammals is having offspring who need a lot of care. 200 million years ago or so, the mammalian brain developed the capacity to care for the welfare of another individual and to provide it with lots and lots of care until it could grow to adulthood, which is sort of the original form of altruism. But one of the things that's really unusual about humans as a species, not unique, but relatively unusual, is that humans develop this even more impressive capacity for what's called alloparenting, which means that human parents don't just care about their own offspring, they care about offspring generally. And this is a tendency that we share with other social mammals, including some primates and lions, for example, wolves, um, all of which are pretty willing to care for any babies that cross their path. It doesn't have to be their own baby. They're just like, if it's a baby and it needs help, I'll take care of it. Good enough. And so it seems to be the case that humans have now developed the capacity to care fairly broadly for anything that is vulnerable and distressed, like, for example, somebody who's afraid, somebody who's suffering because they're very sick. Hoping to save up for college, 18-year-old Ebony Williams was working that busy Saturday morning when she met Adrian. 
Uh, and that triggers activity in these ancient parental care structures that motivate the desire to help even sometimes distant strangers. Having trouble cutting up his meat, the 78-year-old asked for help. My hands are not up to par. If I want to cut my meat, I got to look like I'm starving it. Of course she said yes, but what the two didn't know... And so clearly as a species, we genuinely have the capacity to care for people who are vulnerable and suffering. And I think that's just important as we go about our daily life to realize that the people around us are not fundamentally callous and only looking out for themselves. Most people really do care about others' welfare. And we shouldn't be too surprised when a small subset of the population does terrible things because a very small fraction of people are just jerks, you know, to put it colloquially. And that's not going to change. That's, that's just sort of part of what it means to be human is, is variety. And that's okay, and that doesn't say anything about the rest of the population. In fact, it's a good reminder that most people are, in fact, not like that. So Professor Abigail is saying that the origin of altruism is something that's been sort of is effectively buried in our evolutionary past. Yeah, it's, it's all this hard wiring. It's chemicals that get released in the brain. It's an amazing thing to think that you know you can go through your whole life not really caring for another human being, then you become a parent. And actually, there's all kinds of, you know, things released in you that basically make you need to care for this other thing. Amazing experiments with rats. This is just fantastic. So a female rat, and I'm not saying that humans and rats are necessarily that close in this respect, but it's kind of interesting. Female rat who's never had any babies, you leave them with some other rat's babies, and they will ignore them at best and eat them, eat them at worst. <laughs> worst. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then uh, they basically are trying to avoid them as much as possible. But once they kind of get to maturity where they're ready to bear young, it kind of completely changes. And they they just become obsessed with getting near rat babies, even if they're not their own babies. And they will stay, stay so maternal towards yeah, any... Yeah, they're maternal towards any, any rat babies that are around. To the point where, actually, they, they've done these studies, you know, they train them to press a bar to get a reward. And if the reward is being around another rat baby, then they'll do that, they'll keep pressing the bar. And actually, they prefer that to cocaine. So you've got like a choice of two bars. One's giving you a shot of coke, and the other one's like access to somebody else's rat pups. Hang on, do, and do they're rats choosing like the rat pups. Yeah, well, you know, does everything like coke? Everything likes coke. Yeah, even ants like coke. Really? Yeah. yeah. Why? Well, it must trigger something in the brain, I guess. Yeah. So a dopamine release. Um, but so, not as good as hanging out with a rat baby. Not as good as hanging out with a rat baby. I mean, obviously, there'll be kin selection in there as well. Presumably, like you, you want to hang out even more with close Your kin own, babies. Yeah. I'm trying to think about. I was very disappointed when my uncle Michael who is my blood relative, split up with my auntie Tina. I was quite sad. I mean, obviously, but I've never seen auntie Tina again. And actually, no. I don't really care. <laughs> auntie Tina, if you're listening, not, get in touch with the not, show. Not a blood relative. Not a blood relative. That's my new mantra. Yeah. George Price, who did the whole kin selection theory, got really depressed by his whole discovery and started just doing like random acts of kindness and like helping drunks and stuff like oh, that. Oh, really? Who then, you know, he took them in like, off the street and then they started stealing from him. <laughs> oh, that's a great, that's like a, a sort of modern fable. <laughs> There's a horrible lesson in there. <laughs> when you sign your name on the dotted line of the contract, You'll own my house outright. 
I only ask that you never mention how you got the house or try to contact me for any reason. And if you're wondering why you, please stop. Okay, so <laughs> does altruism really exist? No. I don't think, yeah, yes, well, right. yes, it does. It, it doesn't make you good. No, it does. It's just you don't have any control over it. So altruism looks selfless, but actually isn't selfless. That's what some of it say. is, though. It's not in the end, is it? Because there's always a reason why you're doing that thing. Do you reckon if I disrupted the rational thought center of your brain and then asked you to? donate a kidney to a stranger you might do it yes i think I, <laughs> I think i really might because i had to think it through i actually watching the film you, i mean watching the film you think oh my god this is amazing he's giving all his you know his organs away and then you realize it's because he's absolutely racked by guilt over you know his poor behavior while driving so it's not selfless he's basically saying to I, make want, himself feel I want to better. give my life more meaning and at the moment i just feel like i shouldn't even exist because i killed seven people <laughs> Does he die at the end? Yes. But Woody Harrelson gets his eyes. How does he look? Weird. With his eyes. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Missed that one. Give a little bit. Give a little bit of your love Next week's episode is a special live edition of Science Ish <gasps> from Shoreditch House in London. And we're going to be talking about multiverses oh, and so Rick and Morty. So excited for this. It's sort of embarrassing how much you like that stuff. Science-ish is a Radio Wolfgang production presented by me, Rick Edwards, and Dr. Michael Brooks. The producers were Cormac McAuliffe and L. Scott. Sound designed by Ivor Slayer-Manley. Special thanks to Professor Abigail Marsh. If you like the show, please subscribe and rate us, maybe even write a review on whatever app or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, uh, at science underscore ish, or check out our website, scienceish.org. To be honest, if I had a choice and Will Smith's ears were available... I think I would take them just because it's a nice claim to fame. And people are like, just for like pub chat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, your ears are weird. And they're actually used to be Will Smith's ears. Yeah. And then, and then you're away.